text line at 405-651-3439. Live from the Brown O'Haver Studios, it's time for The Rush with Butkus Award winner Teddy Lehman and Tyler McComas. They're going to have to raise the bar. And I think that's one of the things Brent Venables recognized right away when he got to OU. You know, he was there as a coordinator for a lot of, a lot of years, had a lot of success with Bob Stoops, goes to Clemson and sees, boy, they're doing things a little bit differently here. When Dabo needs something, Dabo gets it. You know, Clemson was, even though they're in the ACC, they're competing against Alabama. They're competing against Ohio State. So Brent was kind of a co-pilot to, to Dabo and, and to Dan Rodakovich, who was his AD, and he was seeing the way Clemson was do, dealing with things when it came to the revenue that it takes to be um, an elite program and the kind of recruiting. I think he got to Oklahoma and he thought, hey, guys, you're doing a great job here in the Big 12. But if you're trying to go over there into the SEC, we're going to have to go to a whole different level as far as commitment. And I think that's right now that's where Oklahoma, they're trying to kind of mm-hmm. kind of, kind of stabilize themselves. And I think OU, uh, Texas is as well with Sark being in Alabama. They're going to have to raise the bar as far as what it's going to take to compete with those big boys. Little Herb Street action to get things rolling off today, or was that Mike Gundy? That was uh, it. Was Herb Street? He would go on to say that OU's catch radius needs to be wider if they're uh, going to win in the SEC. You start, know, he likes uh, to throw out that catch radius. You start re- reciting uh, stats off of the ESPN.com <laughs> page on Oklahoma. Well, the FBI says. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I, I think there's a, there's a lot truth of to that truth to what he said there, um, and Herb Street. Is a uh, he and Venables are pretty close. A couple of his are two of his boys at Clemson, or just one? I think both were. I don't know if one transferred out. Both were at one point. I think Dabo had two sons there, and I think Herb Street had two sons. I mean, at one point or another, and Venables had one or two there. Two, two. Jake and Tyler just had one. I I don't know. It, it, It was a yeah. Yeah, well, um, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, you know, we've talked about that, the resources and such that Oklahoma's going to have to uh, to have to go into the SEC and compete. And I think they've answered a lot of those things. Have they answered all of them? I don't necessarily think so yet, but yeah. I know they're working in that direction. Is it fair to say, um, or not fair to say, that before Brent Venables got the job and just kind of what Kirk Herbstreet was talking about, OU needs to kind of, you know, beef things up a little bit. Is it fair to say that it was in a little bit of a lull over there? Uh, well, yeah. By being in this conference and, you know, not really having to match the facilities that are in this league, it, you think a lull is fair? Yeah. I think it's only natural whenever you're having – by – most any metric Oklahoma you would say is one of the most successful programs in the country, which, you know, I get it. They haven't won a national championship in uh, 21 years. So I understand that the first reaction is going to be, how can you be successful when you haven't won a championship in that long? Well, by, you know, finishing in the top 10 pretty much every single year, uh, winning a, a ton of conference championships, 
making the college football playoff, um, you know, winning some big time bowl games against other big opponents. I almost every other team in the country is jealous of where Oklahoma is. There's a small handful that are not, but by a pretty wide metric and pretty wide uh, vision of college football, you would say that Oklahoma is successful whenever you're having a large amount of success and you don't have to pay out a whole heck of a lot. Like, you know, some it's like, hey, yeah, well, we, we've done pretty good without having this. And your biggest I, – I think a huge factor, too, is your biggest rival has been awful now during the decade of seven. There's no doubt. I think that that is a huge factor in that. Um, I mean, and not that OU didn't want to win a championship, but like it's just human nature, you know? It's human when, – when your conference stinks and your best rival stinks, then you get kind of into a lull, Sure. Yeah, and you know there is even though we have the the playoff and we have bowl games, there still is a really big regionality effect of college football. Um, Ohio State and Michigan, more Michigan is constantly comparing themselves to Ohio State and trying to keep up with them. Right, uh, Georgia is trying to keep pace with Alabama. Texas is trying to keep pace with Oklahoma. If Oklahoma were trying to keep pace with Texas and, you know, Texas was ripping off conference championships and Texas was, you know, hiring all these analysts and had all these different resources, Oklahoma would be a lot quicker, I think, to do all of those things. But to your point, since you haven't had to try to keep pace with that, you feel pretty good with where you're at. Yeah, Oklahoma wasn't being pushed to improve program-wise in the Big 12. The ones that were supposed to push them, Texas, was such an embarrassment on the field that OU felt no pressure. That's yes. from the 918. Uh, also from the 918, if people are down in Oklahoma because we haven't won a title in 21 years, then why does Georgia yeah. get a pass? They went 40 years without one, and the only thing in Georgia besides Atlanta is air and opportunity. Well... Whenever I uh, I put my prediction, I put it into the public ledger on Twitter, a lot of the comments were, ha, three years, haven't won a championship in over 20 years. And the quick, easy response is, well, how long it's been has nothing to do with when it's going to happen next. Just ask Georgia. So or ask, ask Clemson uh, in 2016. They had one That's one right. since 1981. Like, <laughs> all just all over it. That's today. right. You can expect more of of this as the show rolls on. <laughs> Good. I Good. promise you. Good. I. It had been. What was Saban's first? Uh, at, at 09, Alabama. 09. Which uh, I actually posted about that game today. I'll tell oh, really? you more about that here in a couple minutes. Well, it was 09 when he won his first. It had been – it may not have been 92. 20 years, but that's a, it was a long stretch since Gene Alabama Stallings won. Uh, won it in 92, and their next one was 2009. Yeah, yeah. so what's that, 16, 17 years? So, um, Ohio State had a long drought, right? Uh, 02 and – 14? No, well, I, I think they had a longer drought than that because they didn't win one in the 90s. I don't think Ohio State won one in the 80s either. It may have been back to the 70s since Ohio State had won one. Right. Well. Texas had been like 70 to 2005. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, droughts happen. USC's 
was probably long too, wasn't it? USC did not win one in the 90s. They won. They split for that 03 title. Won it outright in 04. Then it got taken away. But Man, look at you. Ohio State, 1970 to 2002. Are you, like on a scale of 1 to 10, Man. how impressed are you? Just kind of, somewhat... Just somewhat because you do something like this every <laughs> single day. I'm just, I'm used to it. Uh, I know. It's all that to say, uh, yes, the droughts happen in college football and they droughts get snapped. And guess what? It's only a handful of teams that uh, snap their droughts. Yeah. It's the same teams snap the drought and come back and win it. So. Look at AM when they won their most recent. Oh, never mind. It's been since 1939 since AM's won a title. Sorry. Man. I almost forgot there for a second. If, if we could just get Nebraska going, could you imagine a playoff with Nebraska, Oklahoma, Miami? Who else would you need in there? Notre Dame. 88 since uh, they won theirs. Yeah, I guess I was thinking that that because Miami's last one was in 01. Uh-huh. Oklahoma's was 2000. Nebraska was, what, 97? 97, yes. 97, and so Michigan would need to be in there, too. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't know. Okay, I, you yeah. had me with the first three. <laughs> You're going to throw Michigan in there. I'm out. So I tweeted out a, uh, a picture from the – 2009 season national championship game it was from january 7th 2010 um texas is up six to nothing on alabama with 245 left in the first quarter right yeah and at that moment teddy things were so great on the 40 acres as maybe as good as they've been since like the late 60s early 70s you know they they won the 08 fiesta bowl um, they were in the 09 National Championship game with the lead. Wasn't that long ago since they had won the 2005 National Championship? Mm-hmm. Like, dude, things were humming at Texas January 7th, 2010 with the 6-0 lead. Since that very moment, man, where they had a lead in the National Championship game, uh, 10 win seasons. You want to take a guess how many they've had? Um, one. One. And that was the year they lost four games, including to Maryland. But that was the Sugar Bowl win, yeah. right? Five and seven seasons, four. Oof. Losing seasons, five. Oof. Conference titles, zero. Winning percentage, I put 55%. It was 54.95673. I rounded up because it was so embarrassing for Texas that I did him a solid right there. Record versus OU, 3-10. and 10. Record versus Oklahoma State, 4-8. and eight. And they're on their fourth coach since that moment. Wow. Hashtag Texas sucks Tuesday. Uh, five and seven. Four times. Four times. So, but I think another time in there, weren't they six and seven? That's why I said five and seven seasons, four, losing seasons, five. They had three consecutive losing seasons in there. Five, seven loss seasons <laughs> in a 10, ten year span or since, well, I guess since that game, rather, it's a little more than 10 years. I, I don't know if OU has had five seven-loss seasons in the history of the program? Um, well, especially since they weren't playing as many games right. back in the 90s. Um, we, may have, we may get out of that with a technicality. Wow, if someone could look that up, send it our way, please. That yeah. would be a great stat. That's, that's wild. Well, yeah, it just lets you know how, how quickly things can go, uh, how th- quickly things can turn around, right?
Wow. Yeah. 6-0 uh, in the first quarter. Looks like they're going to cruise their way. God, who was the quarterback for Bama? Uh, Greg McElroy. Oh, McElroy, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how good Bama was. You know what? If Texas could have just won this game, we wouldn't have had to listen to McElroy on the broadcast here for the last 10 years. Oh, he'd be totally irrelevant, you know, <laughs> if he didn't have that national championship attached to his name. I'm, I'm halfway kidding. He does a good job. He does a good job. It's hard for him, but he – do you think he's fair with Oklahoma? It um, seems like every now and then I, I, he's... I, I, I get. Like, the issue that I had with McElroy, and it wasn't even on TV, it was on his radio show with he and Cole Kublick, an Auburn guy, mm-hmm. to you. And they asked you the question of, well, did you take any issue to OU putting out that they've been the most successful program since World War II? And you were like... I- I mean, OU didn't come up with that stat. I mean, that's what's happened since World War II. I don't like – it was weird when they asked you that. It was really strange. It was like – They wanted you to be like, oh, yeah, OU doesn't deserve that. They're no Alabama. Uh, it was uh, It was like a booby trap or something. You know, I was, I was walking through the woods and they wanted to throw something out there in front of me. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's crazy, though, with Texas. And just to kind of tie back into that a little bit, I just heard a little bit of a podcast. And the only reason I listened to this podcast was I wanted to see the comparison. It was Joe Rogan. No, no. It was the Audible with um, Stuart Mandel and Feldman. And they were saying what would be a successful season for Oklahoma, Texas, USC. And I think they threw LSU in there all you know, teams with new coach and I guess Texas second year head coach. But with Texas, it was make it to the Big 12 championship. With USC, it was win the Pac-12. And with Oklahoma, you know, Bruce Feldman said 10 wins. And I don't know what Stuart Mandel's he, – he never really actually threw his out there, I don't think. But he's he was saying that – well, you're way higher than I am on Oklahoma whenever Bruce Feldman said a, a 10-win season. It's just, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You look at these stats that you just threw out there over the last 10 years, and it's not like, or I keep saying that, since the two, this 2009 picture. Um, it's not like this stuff has been put in the past since Sarkeesian. He just posted a 5-7 and seven record, right? So The fourth one. Yeah, what? Where is the disconnect here between the the people that view Texas? I have, I guess maybe since they're they're not in the Big Twelve, and you know it, they're our rivals, so we know the statistics over their last ten years better than they do with Texas, right? I just I don't understand where the disconnect comes between what they've actually done and what the predictions are. Here's someone else I found today, Bear Felica, not high on OU. (laughs) Under nine and a half with OU. That's funny, Bear. Good joke, buddy. Yeah. I'll take the I'll take the over on that one. I you know, we hear that a lot. I have to just look at it and 
just say, find me the losses. Where are the losses? And don't just rattle off a, a, a school. Tell me why you think that team is better than what Oklahoma has and, and what Oklahoma is capable. Is it going to be quarterback? Is it going to be uh, skill position players? Because you, you just can't find many of those arguments on Oklahoma's schedule. So Can't. Uh, we got to get to Bob Stoops coming up next. All right. Coach Stoops coming up next. Quick break. Opening timeout. Air Comfort Solutions text line 651-3439. It is the rush on the ref, Tyler McComas, Teddy Lehman. It's time for our favorite segment of the week. Bob Stoops joins us, brought to you by Modelo. The current temperature, Teddy, is 109 degrees in mm. Norman, and I'm curious if 109 degrees is too hot to keep Coach Stoops off the golf course or if he <laughs> found his way on to play 18 holes today. What happened today, Bob? No, I just went out early in the morning and worked on my game for about a half hour. That's all I got today. 109 is too much for me. Too much. It's brutal out there. Um, man, it it's, doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. And uh, it, no. it, it got me thinking a little bit. You know, we're, we're getting close. Training camp is, is you know, just a, a couple weeks away. And I was wondering, like, what you thought of the new rules for schedule. Because – Obviously, I'm sure whenever you played, double, triple sessions, some, some coaches, uh, three a days. I know, uh, I know Barry Alvarez, whenever he was up there at Wisconsin, was notorious for the three a days. I wonder if maybe you guys got that from, uh, from your coach. But do you like the rules with, with no two a days, or should you be able to have? I think, I think my freshman year, there was no rule. We did it, I think, 17 straight days. And then the next year, they, they came up with a two-a-day, one-a-day, and I thought that was the greatest thing that ever happened. So what, what's, what's kind of your take on where it is today? Yeah, it's much healthier, much better today. You can get much more done, so much more done in meetings and walkthroughs and not, not being out on the field. I think back to our days, that was insane to have guys out on the field twice a day and we had one of those we had one of those camps it was over 100 degrees every single day now we would go and if you remember you do we would go at like six seven in the morning and then we wouldn't go back on the field till about seven thirty, and because the sun started to get behind some of the trees out there on the uh rugby fields where we practiced so we had to really stretch out the time in between practices. And and usually, you know, one of the practices wasn't as hard as the other. We kind of gauged that. But, um, but, man, we used to lose guys to dehydration, to cramping, to, you know, it, it was too much. It, it's so much smarter today, and they give you more time to get the practices in, more days to get the number of practices you need, and, so anyway, no, they they've got it right now. It's I think it's really good now. I'm looking and how it should be. It's I'm, just safer for the players. 
I'm, Bob, I'm looking at the hottest games in OU history. Looks like the hottest is that season opener in 2000 against UTEP, 108 degrees. Jeez. You had a game in 2013, a uh, season opener against Louisiana Monroe that was 101. 2001, that opener against North Carolina was 100 degrees. Did, did that UTEP game in 2000, did that feel like the hottest game that you ever coached in at OU, or was, or was there another one? Oh, I don't care. I don't know that I care about it. I don't I don't catalog and remember so much the heat, you know. So that was that being, you know, uh, I've I've been out there plenty of times where whether the humidity's up, there's no breeze, you're out there in the middle, you know, in the afternoon with that sun on you, man. You're you're going to even as a coach, you're going to lose 5 to 10 pounds just dripping wet all day. But uh anyhow, uh that just just you just got to work through it. That's all and Backup guys got to be ready to go. You know, there's gonna you need to spell your guys in those situations as well. What's funny in Oklahoma, it feels like every game is 100 degrees, and then someone flips the switch, and then every game is 30 degrees. It's like there's uh, <laughs> it doesn't feel like there's there's ever an in between. I, I always remember, always soon as September came, I mean, uh, as soon as uh, middle of September, soon as like the second third game. It seemed in my in my recollection, it always broke. Then it always all of a sudden became tolerable. Mm-hmm. Second, yep. third game, all the time. Yep, yep. Uh, we just got out of the Big Twelve media days last week, and I, I, I don't know how much of that stuff you saw, but being able to kind of see some of the different teams and maybe hear what's been going on. Um, you know, throughout their off seasons and maybe what their their rosters had had looked like or whatever. Was there was there any team that and, and maybe this didn't just come up through media days, but is there is there a Big Twelve team out there that, that has really grabbed your attention? Whether it's because of a coaching change or maybe getting a couple of players through the transfer portal, just someone that you may think may come from maybe the the middle of the pack and surprise some people. Uh, I I don't I don't. I don't think anything like that has really struck me. I, I just really, uh, you know, believe in the strength of watching them so closely last year and with the number of players back, just how solid and good teams that uh, Oklahoma State and Baylor both, both, you know, were last year. And I believe with all the people, you know, the good number of people, I'm not an expert on it, but it seems like they've got a good number of, Key positions back, and if you can if you can beat out Bohannon at, at Baylor, look out because I thought he was really a good good solid quarterback. So anyhow, um, you know I I just am anxious to see those two teams again. Uh, and again, I really paid attention to them last year, being on the Fox Big Noon kickoff, and I was impressed with them both on tape, and then seeing seeing them in person as well. Bob Stoops is our guest. Go check out some Rock and Roll Tequila. Rock and Roll Tequila is Oklahoma-owned, featuring ultra-premium tequila in platinum, mango, and strawberry. Bob, uh, speaking of Big 12 Media Day, Brent made a comment last week. I didn't realize that you recruited him to Kansas State. That's what he was saying. Do you remember any specifics at all about recruiting to Brent Venables to, to Manhattan? What do you remember? Oh, just what a what a great person he was, and what a competitor, uh, tough guy. You know, loved the game, and uh, yeah, I shoot, I, I remember all of it, and 
you know, Brett and I go all the way back there and was and was everything we had hoped he'd be. A tough, hard, hard nose, you know, really solid, good player for us. And uh, and uh, and oddly, his sidekick next to him was Kirby Hokut. Huh. I yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh yeah, Kirby Hokut was also. Uh, they played together, uh, you know, at Kansas State. Uh, so anyhow, um, now Brent was, you know, gr- always has been, and I went to bat for him with Coach Snyder when Jim Levitt was leaving our linebacker coach to take over the South uh, Florida head coaching job. I, I, Coach Snyder, of course, wanted my input on who we would hire as a linebacker coach, and I was adamant that Brent would be the best. I said, I understand there's a lot of people out there that have more experience but there isn't anybody out there that has more experience in our system. He was a player in a GA for us, so he understood our system inside and out. And I said, Coach, we're not looking for ideas or to change because, uh, you know, when he left, when Jim left, we were number one in the country and two in the country in scoring defense and total defense the year before. So I said, we want to keep doing the same things we're doing, and Brent knows it better than anybody. And fortunately, Coach Snyder, after interviewing and seeing a bunch of other people, came to the same conclusion that we're going to hire Brent. So he was hired young as an assistant coach uh, there at Kansas State. And then, uh, anyhow, it was great. I remember him at Kansas State bringing Julie, his wife, to to one of the recruiting, uh, to one of the, uh, I want to say, a recruiting dinner or a bowl dinner. So I remember meeting Julie for the first time. They were he brought her to one of our functions, and so we go way back, of course. See, Teddy, he can remember that. You can't remember anything that happened two days ago. Two so. days? I can't remember this morning. Uh, I, so I guess you recruited him three times then, as a player, as a coach there at Kansas State, then again <laughs> as a coach at OU, and heck, I don't know, maybe four times. Maybe you tried to convince him to you, – you're what got him over the hump taking the head coaching job here at Oklahoma for the fourth time. Um Ah, fascinating. It's a really, really cool story. Um, His system, is it – do you think it's going to be – do you have – like if you move conferences, and obviously there's going to be a little bit of difference between some of the offenses that you face and and some of that stuff, and I guess there's going to be some changes here in the Big 12 with with quite a few different offensive coordinators with some coaching changes, but do you – whenever you install a new defense, is it – do you bring what you did previously and that's exactly what you go with and then you can kind of branch off of that? Or do you have to do you have to kind of look at the conference coming up and change it before you ever install? No, you don't change it. You go with what you know, what brought you you you, you understand it, you you know what's good and bad and you're gonna adjust it you know, as you go. For instance, when I left Kansas State, we were number one in the country, I said, in total defense and scoring defense. And I played Jim Levitt and I, we were all primarily one high safety. So we, we were all pressed up. We're going to bump and run. We're going to bail out and play three deep. We're going to bump and run with cut coverage and one, one high safety. I went my first scrimmage with Steve Spurrier. He went up and down the field four <laughs> straight times. He, and then he yells across the field. He says, Bobby, you think we're going to be able to force a punt this year? <laughs> <laughs> and and leaving the field, I got to thinking, what in the hell? This has never happened to me. 
and he puts his arm around me once the scrimmage was over. We're going in the locker room. He said, Bobby, he said, you just keep doing what you're doing. He goes, you're not going to see anybody else like us. So just keep doing it. <laughs> and, and sure enough, we won a national championship that year, and we didn't change. But point being, you're playing him or certain people are so efficient, you've got to mix it up. And that's what I learned, and I, and I started even there going against him. I can't just sit in one high safety all day. It's too easy for him. you got to mix in quarter coverages, half field. You, just, you have to mix it up and not allow people to know you know, what you're doing. We we were just at a point at Kansas State at that time, we were so good with our corners and secondary and defense that we overwhelmed. And people weren't used to seeing that yet. And then, you know, he once he saw it, he wore it out. So point being, you do it, you know, what, what you're comfortable and familiar with, and then you adjust, you know, with who you're playing and as your, your personnel fits what you're trying to do. Last question. You were in Youngstown a few weeks ago. Um, did you see Mike there? Because uh, Kentucky, man, they have transformed into a tough, gritty football program, especially defensively. How's Mike doing, and how excited is he to, to be out there at that uh, backer's job out there in Lexington? Yeah, I saw Mike and Mark. Uh, we're pretty good with our family. If the wedding's in the summer, we all go. One of my nephews, my oldest brother, Ron's son, got married, and the whole crew was there. We had a great time. If there's any uh, family that knows great. not to book a fall wedding, it's the Stoops family. Well, all our weddings are all within about a five, six-week period, <laughs> from the beginning of June to early July. Dead period. And uh, on, honestly, about every every one of my siblings and and even nieces and nephews have followed suit because they like they like all their uncles to be able to come. So. Uh, but anyway, Mike's doing great. Mark's doing awesome. And, um, yeah, we had a good time. Good stuff, it Coach. It actually, was actually up in Akron, and we even went up to Lake Geneva, Lake Erie. We used to vacation while we were young growing up. We'd all take a week vacation up at the state cabins on Lake, uh, Lake Erie. It was called Geneva on the Lake. Great spot. So we went up there for a couple of days. After the wedding. Had a good time. That's cool. Good stuff. Coach, we appreciate you stopping by. As always, we know you're busy, so we appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Good to be with you. Boomer Sooner. Boomer. All right. There we go. Wow, he threw us a curveball today. Yeah. Did not expect that. Good stuff from Coach there. Um, We'll hit a timeout, late for a timeout. And uh, a couple of things to unpack there that I think are are pretty interesting. Quick timeout, more from the rush coming up. Air Comfort Solutions, text line 651-3439. Davis Construction bringing you our number one of the rush on this Tuesday. Good stuff as always from Bob Stoops. You acted like a couple of things uh, stuck out to you. What what stuck out to you the most about that? Well, number one, your comfort level with calling Coach Stoops Bob. Yeah. I mean, we're boy. We talk every single week. How many people in your life do you talk to every single week? I think that deserves first name basis. You talk uh, to your wife on a me, your wife, and your kid. 
You even talk to your parents Usually. on a week, weekly, weekly basis? Uh, parents, yes. Wife and kid, usually. I, I even know when the man is on vacation and where he's currently at. It's true. That, that is true. Um, I thought that was interesting. I thought his, um, you know, whenever he brought up the Kansas State to Florida aspect, and then, I mean, you could you could also – talk about as he transitioned back to Oklahoma too and how Venables I there there are plenty of similarities still with Venables defense from whenever he was at Oklahoma but it's also fascinating to see how it has all changed and I just wonder right, what what it's going to look like at the beginning of the year compared to what it may look like at the end of the year and what it may look like in three, four years down the road and how how it's going to morph and change. Because I was it got me to thinking about my time at Oklahoma and even in the four years whenever I was there, we changed quite a bit from year one to year four in what we did and what we specialized in. Um, a lot of that thing, a lot of that has to do with like your personnel and how you build around it. Like Roy Williams, really turning into the player he did throughout 2000, and then 2001 was was different in how how we used him as a nickel, and it really so those two different defenses were different coverage wise because you could do so much with him playing nickel. And then he wasn't there anymore, and it, it it just changed some of the the dynamics. And I wonder if we are going to have a player that emerges that changes the dynamic of what you call and how you play your defense. Okay, um, is the position most likely to come from the cheetah spots? Because it kind of feels like that. Uh, I I don't know if it's just the name of it, but it's just so. I don't. It, it feels like it has a true playmaking potential at that spot. Is it going to be there? Is it going to be backer? Is it going to be edge rusher? Like, where's it going to be if it happens this season? Edge. Yeah. This season, I would say edge. Stripling or downs. Moving forward, it will be the cheetah spot. Well, and I think that's probably when you're going to see his best defenses here is when you have a dynamic player at that position, kind of like what you just mentioned with Roy playing nickel. Yeah. And I it, it's crazy because the the better we got defensively the less we did. And you could just we ended up playing what felt like the same call over and over and over almost the entire game. And you know, whenever you got a four-man rush that can just beat people up front and you've got corners and backers that can cover underneath and keep two high safeties over the top, then you don't have to do a whole heck of a lot. So I just wonder how Venables will find kind of what their mix is. And I don't know, man. There's I go back and forth between our defensive line maybe being one of the weak points on the team and then – it doesn't take much for me to look at it and say, I don't I'm not so sure about that. I think they have a chance to be really, really good. Um Ethan Downs 
has a chance to this season turn into an absolute stud. 100%. Um, I think Stripling has a chance to be kind of the perfect mix. Ethan Downs is going to be more of a traditional uh, hand-down big defensive end, like a traditional defensive end, and Stripling is going to be more of a speed. It's like, I mean, in a – in a perfect world, it would be like you have Dan Cody on one side and you have Oboe on the other. Yeah. You know, and both of those guys kind of fit those two body types about the same. And if you if you end up getting that, that type of play, which I'm not – I don't mean to just throw some – like those two names out there, but I'm just saying like if you get that kind of style of play, it can be perfect. And I think we've got – the ability to be consistent on the interior with the chance, depending on what you get from Redmond, to have some flash and maybe some guys that can really yeah, do something. And I don't even know if the word concerned is what I would use for the interior, but I am much more concerned, I guess, about the interior than the the two guys out there on the edge. Yeah. I, like, is it fair to say, because I think it is, the, the edge spots, the guys coming off the edge, I guess it technically is labeled as a question mark, but at the same time, I'm really not worried about what the production's going to look like. I mean, it's it's an unknown just because of the amount of games both of them have played, but I'm not really worried what the overall production is going to be. Yeah. I, I think the production's going to be very high with both of those guys. Yep, yep. I'm I kind of fall into that that camp. Um, I think there's a there's a chance that OU's defensive line right now uh, could end up being the most underrated unit in the conference because nobody's talking about the defensive line, right? And there's there's a couple of guys on there that Stripling and Ethan Downs specifically that have a chance to not just be good, solid players, but have a chance to be, um, you know, all-conference type of players and – Maybe even more than that moving forward. Yeah, uh, let me read to a few texts here. In 1945 and 1961, OU was five and five, but they have never gone five and seven in their history that I'm aware of. Yeah, in the 12 game format, I don't think five and seven has happened either. No. Yeah, I, OU's never had a five and seven season. When did they start the 12 game format? Um, let's see. Well, 2000, you guys played 11 regular season games. Yeah. 2001, you played that extra game against North Carolina. Um, 2003, well, was 2000, 2002 or 2003? Because 2003, you played 14 games. Yeah. Well, all I know is if that's when it started, then in the OU's never had a losing in the 12 game, a losing right. season in the 12 game era. So, or anything remotely close to that, by the way. It really hasn't been. What seven close. and five is the worst year, right? Uh, is that two thousand five? Uh, no, they they won eight games. Uh, Ninety nine was the only time Bob won. They were seven, seven and five games. regular season, and then beat Oregon, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they finished yeah all those years with an eight win season. Gotcha. Since eighteen ninety five, OU has an overall record of nine hundred and nine, three twenty seven and fifty three, with a total of twelve losing seasons in program history. Yeah, there you go. 
That's it. Breaking news: Teddy just called Dan, uh, just called uh, Ethan Downs, Dan Cody. I'm sure that is not circulating on the message boards right now as we speak. Similar body type. I'm uh, sure at Lucille's in Weatherford. That's what everyone's going to be talking about tonight. You'll hear old uh, Calmus over there on the ref <laughs> say that uh, Downs is going to be like Cody. Uh, I I don't think I think Downs is going to end up being shockingly bigger, uh, heavier, anyways. I think Dan was – he was just like an eighth of an inch under 6'6". And, you know, he was 275, I think, our sophomore year. And I think he came down a little bit from that, 265-ish, and then maybe his last year, 260, uh, because they started playing him in, in some stand-up uh, roles and stuff. So um, I think Ethan Downs is going to be like, kind of – a just like a, a a bigger hand down throughout type of defensive end. That's a good thing. He may even be a guy that if he continues to get bigger and bigger, which he might, you may see some stuff where they slide him down to a three technique in pass rushing huh. situations. So, all right, quick timeout. More from the rush coming up. We'll wrap up hour number one next. <laughs> 